0: Thank you all for joining us and welcome to a special session of our Quick Byte series featuring a live taping of the Bricks and Clicks podcast with special guest Heather Cooper of Oatly. Before we get started, Naturally Bay Area would like to thank our generous sponsors. Their contributions allow us to bring you this educational programming and create opportunities for community building. Special thanks to our newest silver level sponsor, Nielsen IQ, for helping make these events possible. Speaking of events, Naturally Bay Area is thrilled to invite the community to our in-person Fall Fling Celebration on Thursday, November 3rd at Oak Stop in Uptown Oakland. We hope you'll join us to enjoy catered food from La Cocina, local wine and beer, samples from emerging brands, and a festive environment to connect with other members of the Local community. We'll drop the registration details into the chat. Hope to see you there. And now I am pleased to introduce the hosts of the Bricks and Clicks podcast, Johnny and Colin. Go ahead and take it away.
1: Thank you, Monique. Welcome, everyone, to our first episode of season two of Bricks and Clicks. My name is Johnny Valeriat, and I am joined by my co host, Colin R. Davidson. We are excited to be recording this live as part of the Naturally Bay Area Quick Bites series. To everyone who has joined us, please feel free to ask your questions in the QA box and we will try to answer them throughout the episode. Now, joining us for this episode is Heather Cooper, who is currently the SVP of US Retail Sales at Oatly. Heather has spent 20 years working in CPG for big, medium, and small companies. And over the last 10 years, Colin and I have been fortunate enough to work alongside Heather at a few of these. We are pleased to have this opportunity to chat with her and share some of the lessons she has learned along the way. Heather, welcome to Bricks and Clicks.
2: Thank you, Johnny. So happy to be here.
1: Awesome. So Heather, like many
3: of us in the CPG world, I'm guessing that you did not go to school thinking you would end up in CPG. Interested in what your path was to get you into the industry and then how you got to where you are today moving through the CPG industry?
2: My favorite question to ask people at trade shows when I'm getting to know them, how did you get in? Yeah, I have a really, I had an interesting path. I don't know if you guys even know, I went to college for music business. Wow. I I did not know that now i saved some surprises for you yeah i was planning on working in a record company or managing a band and got out of school and realized that that was a little bit too crazy for me and i got a temp job at castrol north america and i'll try to keep this fun story short but i ended up becoming friends with someone who was in the category management team and of course i had no idea what that was mm-hmm. i interviewed for a job i did not get it So the person I interviewed with was like, you know, if you really want to do this, you have to work at Nielsen or IRI. I was like, great. I have no idea what that is. And my friend actually had come from Nielsen and she sent my resume in. I got an entry-level position, you know, and this is kind of where the journey started. And I really say I just fell into this. And so I worked at Nielsen for three years or three or four years. Once you have a data background, as you guys know, which is I'm sure why we have the best banter ever Yes. I'm slightly dangerous with data. I know enough to be dangerous. I got recruited into Maybelline, the cosmetic company, and I was there for about six years. I would say I described that as learning at the highest possible level. The expectations were high. The stress was high, but I did rotation in category management. I worked with Kmart, remember them, and CVS. I really wanted to be in sales because I was supporting all these amazing sales professionals, and I... I sat down next to our SVP of sales one day on, on the way to a team event and I told him I wanted to be in sales and he's like, well, if you want to be in sales, I need you to go into customer marketing first. It's the mm. only way I'm going to let you do it. So the next job that came up, I was really fortunate that they brought me into New York City to work on in customer marketing on the Walmart business. So now I've worked across several classes of trade. Did that for a year and they moved me back out to be a national account manager on Proger. Wow. So yeah, I checked a lot of boxes like in a pretty short period of time, which you can do in a lot of these larger companies. Like you're, you're really siloed in your specialty, but yeah. they tend to have rotations that you can get experience from. But I mentioned the big company, the stress, the really high level of learning. It, it didn't really fit my lifestyle, I realized. I love doing sales, but I realized I wanted to work for a smaller company and I wanted to move to the West Coast. So I was really fortunate to get hired into this great company called Seventh Generation. It was about $100 million at the time I went there. I moved to Burlington, Vermont. I worked for this amazing guy, Jerry Edwards, who I just happened to see at NFRA this weekend, which was super fun catching up. And... He was running the customer marketing team. It was the first time I got promoted as a director. He had left the business and they made me director over all customer marketing. So I I got thrown into the fire there. So we started a category management team. We started teaching them how to forecast. I'll tell you some of my mistakes there was like, I tried to implement too much big company stuff too fast Mm -hmm. and I had to learn how to pull back. But they moved me out to the West Coast. Finally, I got my California out of the way and they... They made me a sales director of the West. And sad story there, I ended up getting a call from Cliff Bar, sad for them, because Cliff Bar was like my dream company to work for. And I was really fortunate to get brought in as a national account manager on Albertsons. I took a demotion because I really wanted to work at Cliff Bar. And that's where I first met you guys. I worked on Albertsons, or it was Safeway at the time, for two years. We were category captains. And then Rick and Sarah and Karen tapped me on the shoulder and they're like, we want you to get back into customer marketing again. So I did that for a couple more years. I learned the most, I would say, in that position. That was like probably one of my biggest learnings over the last 10 years. And then from there, I ended up going to Kite Hill and was sales West Coast again. And then I was really fortunate to get this Oatly opportunity. I was really wanting to run my own sales team. And while I'm not the head of sales, I am getting the opportunity to do what I like best, which is, and know best, which is retail. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well,
3: I knew a lot of that background, but there were actually some new bits in there for me as well. Good. So thanks for all the background. You did a lot of back and forth between like internal, external, headquarter sales and field sales. You actually started on the data side and went yeah. out and came back. Now that adds, as you're talking about it, it seemed to add a lot to like your selling toolkit and just your your overall toolkit as on the sales side of the business. How do you feel like that got you ready for sales or made you better at selling?
2: Yeah. I I mean, there's so, so many things there. I mean, I kind of described to the team now that my career was kind of like, It was a jungle gym. It wasn't a ladder. Yeah. A lot of people are like, how did I get the next job, get promoted? I could have probably been a VP many years ago, maybe not many, but a couple of years ago, sooner for sure. But what I ended up doing was yeah, I really was building my toolbox, whether it was like different customers I was selling to or different skill sets, which with the category management and the customer marketing, or now it's really customer strategy. I call it the trifecta of sales. Every time I'm hiring somebody, I'm looking for, I call it like, it's like, like a three-legged stool, Colin. You mm. love that now. Love the three oh. legged
3: Love the three-legged stool. Colin's go-to.
2: Colin's go-to. They stole it. But the category management was super important to me. I think I can speak to data in a way that many sales leaders can't. I can help people craft stories that. I think people don't have the skill set to do, and they usually go to an analytic team to do that work. The other piece about customer strategy, I think, is as a sales leader, you are working with the internal teams. You are developing your go-to-market strategy. You are helping develop your pricing strategy. You are planning your promotion strategy. And I have a lot of like deep thoughts into how we do that and how it will affect our financials. There's that piece. I think there's working with the marketing teams and the supply chain teams and really understanding what some of their constraints are so that you can be a better partner. I think the time, especially at Cliff Bar, I learned so much, which makes me so much better at my job today.
1: Yeah, because that customer marketing role, right? You're right in the middle of everything because you're getting pulled by the field. You're getting pulled by marketing, finance. You kind of have to be the peacemaker across everything and communicate what can we do? What can't we do? We can deliver this growth with this trade budget and this marketing spend. So that is a tough role. And I mean, Colin and I work with a lot of customer marketers and we just try and support them in any way they need because they are feeling it every day. And it sounds like that's what your experience was when you've been leading customer marketing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think too, I was really lucky when I came to Oatly that, you know, it was so funny. They were only hiring me. They were hiring my position and there was a woman that was in the interview pool, Jen Newman, and she ended up like getting them to think about this role and she ended up getting hired same day as me and she started same day as me. And I cannot imagine if Jen did not start with me because I would have to be doing all of those things in addition to the selling role. And I don't think we appreciate that department as much as we should because I was just talking about this as. a our team meeting the other day that like our selling team could not be doing the jobs that we're doing without that support. And they do so much of the heavy lifting internally that let us just focus on selling. And it's a really hard role. I some people probably heard me call it the punching bag job sometimes yeah. because as you said, Johnny, like you are in the middle and you're probably saying no to somebody on one end or the other. And it's really, it's amazing experience. Yeah,
1: and it makes you a better business manager when you are leading a sales team right now, right? When you're on the leadership team, you understand all these puts and takes and trying to drive the the PL that the, the headquarters wants to see.
2: Yeah, it's as little as if there's salespeople on the call, like we go in and every single retailer is asking you for an exclusive something or other usually. And immediately I can go to like, oh, what are the MOQs of that product? How is that going to affect channel strategy across other retailers? Am I going to get critical mass? How do I have to promote? It just, my head just starts going there immediately. And I think if you didn't have to work with the supply chain team and the financial team and developing P&Ls, you might not go there.
3: Yeah, it helps you act like a GM really on the business. And wouldn't we love it if everybody viewed themselves as a
1: GM over their own business, right? How much better our businesses would be?
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree.
1: So you mentioned something interesting around your demotion. You took a demotion to go to Cliff. I didn't know that. And that's something when I talk to other people who are talking, thinking about their next career move, they almost always rule that out. And I encourage them like, look, if it's an opportunity at a company that you want to work with and work for the people that you want to work with, that's okay. And it's okay to go down, take a step back and then move forward. So I thought that was a really interesting tidbit that maybe people don't know that that's more common than they think. And it's okay to do that. Mm -hmm. So I commend you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Especially when you're adding those skills into your toolkit.
2: Yeah.
3: You're leveled up quite a bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean, you have to do it for the right reason. I think for me, it was the company culture. I just knew it was going to be such a great fit. And it wasn't just about the money or the title for me. It was about my life and what I was going to enjoy in my life. And my time at Cliff Bar, I had four of the best friends of my entire life that I made at that company. And, you know, I have two of them working with me now and you guys, I meant you guys actually, and then two other people. Of course, of course. You have to make those decisions for what's right for you. But I know it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure for people in their career to constantly move up and whether eating with other people or, you know, whatever your motivations are. I think when I say I've got demoted, I've gotten laid off, like I've had ups and downs, It's not all positive. And the end of the day, I've learned that I'll always persevere after and I'll get to wherever I want to go if I put it in the hard work and network.
1: That's great. So you mentioned in your career, right, you went to seventh generation, which was a smaller company than Maybelline. You've gone to Kite Hill, which is a startup type company. They didn't have the processes in place that maybe a Maybelline or a Cliff did. Yeah. What are some of the important processes that you'd recommend a company that's growing, that's starting up, that doesn't have this function yet that they start implementing today?
2: I mentioned this really quickly with the seventh generation transition. I think you have to figure out the right speed to go. You can't go into a hundred million dollar company and try to put a Porsche size style forecasting system in place. That's probably not going to work. So figuring out the speed at which you go, I think is really important. And thinking about this too, I was thinking about as a sales person, I knew I had to submit a forecast, but that's all I knew. Like yeah. I was just like, with the Kroger person, I had to submit a forecast, but no one ever explained the whole process to me and why it was important. And when I went to Cliff Bar was really mentored by Sarah Ciccarello and this process, who's just absolutely phenomenal really? person in industry to learn from. She really sat down and was like, this is the planning calendar. And we started at a certain point in the year with key learnings, which I know you guys were super involved with. Yeah. So we did a lot of re- deep dive and research on the business of what were the big questions that we had that might inform the strategy. And then we presented those out. And I think we got buy-in from the sales team. Like That was so cool that we did that. And then the customer marketing team took all those insights and started reframing, looking at the strategy. And you don't have to revamp your strategy every year, but there might be some fine
1: tuning. Some tweaks, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like I can remember when the multi-packs yeah. became more. That was, I think That you was guys a big played. change.
1: Yeah. That was a big, I remember <laughs> going back and forth with you a lot in those meetings and sort of pushing from six packs to be higher and higher and higher and higher mm-hmm. up in those ski rat meetings. Yeah. But that was a result of the key learnings that you talked about.
2: Yeah, yeah, Which exactly. comes back
1: to yeah. very data-driven, right? Like key learnings
3: are like, let's go see what's going on and learn. Rama what's actually happening in market as opposed to uh, uh, here's what we would like to do. Without looking at the data.
2: Yeah. Or just getting stuff. You know, you could be like, oh, I set my strategy. I'm going to run. It's going to be two for threes for 20 weeks. And then you never look at it again. And it's been outdated or you realize, hey, maybe ice cream has a certain seasonality and it's better to promote during a certain time because eventually you're just like fine tuning things and trying to get the most efficiency and volume out of everything. So yeah, having a calendar, doing the insights, then letting your team go out and plan and sales meeting, explaining everything to them, getting buy-in. I think inspiring your sales team is so important. It's more than strategy. It's about getting them excited about what's coming and let them go do their thing and do their planning and come back and present it to you and the leadership team and strategy team for buy-in. And then they're off to do their thing. So I think that planning cycle, no one ever explained that to me. And I think it's Mm. really important to actually take your sales team through. Here's why we're doing all this. You're not just doing a forecast.
1: Yeah, we call that the wheel, the annual wheel, right? Just constantly, you just do that every year and you just repeat. It's so valuable. Go ahead, Colin.
3: Yeah. I hadn't thought like just having those dates on a calendar can be so valuable. We've worked with companies who have them and don't. And sometimes a lot of the times people have been there for a few years. So everybody kind of knows, but we probably forget to bring along the new people, right? Cause they haven't been there for a few years. So just okay. putting dates on a calendar and having people see that.
2: Yeah. Fun fact. I was graded as a D minus in forecasting by Michael Burles.
1: You know, it's
2: come a long way. The reason I say is I remember him and I talking so much about the Safeway CNS plan. And I was like, Michael, why do I have to make all these changes in this plan? It's only 10% of the business. And he was just like, it's important to make sure everything's aligned for trade spend and clearing things. And it just didn't click till he sat down and explained all that to me. It just seemed like a waste of time for me, who was a busy salesperson. Mm-hmm.
3: Michael Burles is a, a PhD level rocket scientist, for those who might not know who he is. So he's very thorough, very detailed and, and great at forecasting.
1: should have just told him to build his own forecast, say Burles, I'm selling, you go make the forecast. Okay?
2: Yeah.
3: So
1: then when we're talking about forecasting, what are like, if you have
3: a forecaster, right? What, what are the inputs? What are you asking a team to forecast then, Heather? Are they just forecasting cases, forecasting yeah. doors or inputs? Or what, what are we uh-huh. asking our team?
2: I mean, I have my own philosophy on this and people, everybody probably is a little bit different.
3: Really basic. If you're really, really basic, think of the small companies, like what are we, yeah, how do we forecast?
2: Well, I think it's stores, like you said. So how many stores does Sprouts have? How many SKUs am I getting in? And then what do I think their velocity is going to be? And that's the baseline, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you put in your weeks of promotion, your funding rates and the lift you're going to get. Then maybe if you get really fancy, then you start throwing seasonality on there and cannibalization and all that fun stuff. And the other, the one thing I want to say, I feel like I've seen happen so many times is companies get really caught up in being too perfect and like doing a forecast by the skew level, by week, you know, stuff like that. And it probably makes a lot of sense to start on bigger chunks. Like, you know, maybe it's like the product group. So all of yogurt, One size, which is one price, because I'm probably going to have a much better accuracy as a salesperson getting the total product group right versus Mm. what's like strawberry versus plain versus whatever it is. I think a lot of times we try to like get too perfect and we probably miss hitting the side of the barn by doing that.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's about like you mentioned, getting like doors understanding velocity. And those are really the key inputs, right? Yeah. More so than getting to like the final case amount. Exactly right. It's about understanding the build to get to that amount because you're going to miss plan. And then the question is, why do we miss plan? Do we miss on velocity or doors? So like tying everything back to drivers, I think is a really good recommendation for people to like, don't just put numbers in a month by month bill, but know what is driving that.
2: Right. Yeah. And then like you're saying, look at what happened. And I put in a velocity at three. And if it's coming in at two, Either something's wrong or I have to adjust the forecast or you don't ever get into every single door in a retailer. You think you're going to, but something happens, right? There's the execution isn't there or it wasn't the right store set or someone didn't communicate something. So you put in 350 doors and you find out that you're actually in 300. That throws your forecast as well, too. And, you know, you guys have heard me say, like, I want people to just know their business and that's it. You know your business and, and you can present to customers, tell us internally what's going on. There's a lot of things you can't control. You just have to know the answers for why it's happening.
3: And so I think that what you kind of described there in like the forecasting, some stuff, looking back at the numbers, kicks takes us all the way around the wheel and that annual planning cycle back to key learnings again, like what you do some, yeah. some, get some learnings, you make some plans, you execute them, and then you go back and see what happened and adjust. That's the annual process, right? As you get more resources, you start adding more and more fidelity into that.
2: I think some of it, like when I started at Oatly, we kind of were like me and Jen were just like we have no no strategy in terms of how exactly we're going to promote. We just put something out there. And then, and then you get data and you get that to be a little better. And then, you know, we get to work with you guys now and we really refine how we're doing things and like how to make the most out of everything, out of the volume, which is best for the retailer and best for us and spend efficiency. So you just got to start somewhere and then you can just keep making it a little better. Yeah.
3: One comment I wanted to add, and then another question for you, Heather, and I think we'll go to a and a after that. But you mentioned a couple of times, you're very humble. You mentioned a couple of times that you're data-driven and that you like your team to be. In working with your team, I don't know if I've shared this story with you, but I asked some people on your team. I was like, why do you guys, so people on Heather's team know their business so cold. You can be like, "What's, what's your velocity at Kroger on this item? And your sales team, but your field sales team knows these numbers. So I've asked them like, why do you know your numbers in such great detail better than most other organizations? And the answer was, well, Heather's going to ask us. So we need to know (laughs) Know your business. So that is, that really comes through in your team. So my question is like, what, what advice would you give to maybe new or current sales leads out there? on how to keep their teams accountable and on plan. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for sales leaders or aspiring sales leaders?
2: I've learned things from all these sales leaders along the way. Like none of these are original ideas. So Rick Collins had this theory that I really bought into, which was this: like knowing your business and not having the sales team actually worry too much about the forecast. And anybody who is a sales lead on the phone right now is probably having a panic attack that I'm saying this, but I really bought into this over the years because I felt that yeah, I'd put my plan together, I'd work my plan, and then I'd analyze my plan. Same thing. It's like the wheel. But I was never keeping track of my exact number. Like they just didn't put that pressure on us at that time. So now down the road that I have my own sales team, what I've been stressing with everybody has been I want you to put together a plan. I want you to be really strict. I want you to put together a strategy for the customer. I want you to put together the best presentation you can, make sure your samples arrive, practice your talking points, get the resources you need. You're going to present to the customer and you're going to come out, of. you're going to do your internal follow-up, your external follow-up, and then we're going to wait for a decision. And that's really what makes or breaks our forecast at the end of the day is gaining distribution or not gaining distribution. And what I've stressed with my team is that's what I'm going to measure you on. Did you do the prep and the planning the right way? Because at the end of the day, we are all at the whim of our buyers or have their own pressures that we may or may not know about. And I've had times where I put together the damn best presentation I've ever put together and got a no. And it really hurts salespeople like in our soul. When we get the no's, there's a lot of highs and lows there, but I really think it's important to take this stress off your team about the number and have them focus on doing the right things because those yeses and no's, we can't control them. We just have to do our best to tee them up for the yes and then learn why you got the no and adjust the next time.
1: Yeah, that's great. great. So to me, that's that's basically behaviors versus outcomes, right? You're really focused on the behaviors your sales team is taking, what they're doing, how they're planning, and are they going to go sell those three new items into this customer and not worrying about, ah, I'm going to do 10,000 cases or 15,000 cases. Because we know if we get those three items in, they're going to deliver and they're going to work. And so that's what I want them focusing on. Not how many cases I'm going to do. Cool. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's definitely not the typical way I think with a lot of sales organizations, but I mean, I've worked with Rick and you and and Sarah and Karen, so I'm a big, big fan of that as well. So we try and influence wherever we can. Mm
2: -hmm. The other one I want to say Karen gave me was this inspiration around like, do whatever it takes. And like what that meant to me was, you know, it's not like give all your trade away or, you know, millions of dollars in slotting. It meant going to the networking events in Pleasanton and getting to know your buyer and then everybody else in the organization or like going to NFRA like we did this weekend or I'm famous at Kite Hill for taking Albertsons out to a vegan dinner that was two hours away from Expo. And then when I had zero business with them. So like get creative, like, cause we're all in there making these really boring presentations. Yeah. and say the same thing <laughs> these poor buyers have like eight hours of back-to-back-to-back meetings and you have to figure out how you're going to cut through that especially when we're these small emerging brands like how do you stand out with them and i really do think it's about you know what karen said was like just do all the creative things you can think of so that's been another like i mean ultimately that all ties to the forecast for me
1: that's great Awesome, so thanks. with that, I think we're going to move to a few questions in the Q and A. So thank you for posting them. I'm going to pull up this one here, Heather. This is for you. There's okay. a like, so two people have asked this question. Can you talk about how you balance sales team's efforts with broker help? How much are brokers involved in the account planning process?
2: Okay, that's a good one. I was just saying this. I was at a meeting the other day and I was just talking about this. So I am in take. My team is taking the lead in our business. Yep. So we have amazing broker partners throughout the country but I want my team to take the lead in any meeting. Brokers are not taking meetings without me and not me specifically, but my team. I want my team to send the thank you note. I want my team to really be the face that the customer knows. I think brokers are amazing for- Oh,
1: I think we lost Heather. So, well, we have a couple other questions while- Yeah, I got a question for you, Colin. Okay, hit me what is the best way to figure out spend efficiencies? This is from Beth, Greg. Great question. So I'll
3: answer this one real quick. Heather, we'll come right back. So the first thing to decide when you're talking spend efficiency, what exactly are you defining efficiency as? My favorite, I won't call it best, but I'll say my favorite is looking at incremental gross sales. So that's like top line sales for your company. Uh, Incremental meaning they're new if you didn't do the action you're evaluating. So how much more will you sell in top line versus how much it's going to cost you total? So let's say you're looking at a one year plan. If you're going to grow the business by $20,000 and you're spending $10,000 Then your efficiency on that is two, because you're driving $2 for every $1 spent. So whenever I look at efficiency, it always comes down to incremental top line and incremental sales. And then from there, you're you can spent. apply gross margins and things to get down to profit, but always comes down to those two things. How much extra top line, how much extra sales, how much extra spend. Yeah. How much extra spend? spend. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. How much extra sales? How much extra spend?
1: Thanks. There you go. Heather, I want you to continue answering your question because I think that was a really good question. So you would just cut out when you were saying you want you want your sales team leading the calls, leading it with the customer, but you still have broker partners. So maybe how else okay. are they involved or how are they involved in account planning, if at all?
2: Okay. So I don't really involve my brokers in account planning. Okay. I really leverage my brokers for their relationships, With the buyers. So they usually will get you a meeting. I leverage them for filling out paperwork and doing a lot of that type of stuff, you know, and some follow up stuff. But I really want my team showing up in person or online at the meeting. I want them sending the thank you note. I want our retailers to know my face because we couldn't do what we're doing without brokers. They are really amazing. But I think of them as doing a lot of the foundation, especially when you have a sales team that has a lot of customers. But I really want us to be the the face to the brand is no one can sell your brand like you do. No one can. And I learned that from the very beginning, you know, at, at Maybelline, really. So I think I more so when I would cut back to circle back to planning, my team develops the plan. And we give the broker the plan. And I've had, in my experience, like a couple brokers that have been like amazing, amazing people. I have one of them on my team, Christine Lewis, who who runs the grocery business for a couple of our customers. And it's just you're never going to get the same level of work because brokers are handling 50 to 100 accounts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's an impossible expectation of them mm-hmm. to get them to do the stuff you're asking your team to do. Yeah.
3: And on the planning side, they're usually not there in planning. One option, if you wanted to have brokers around, we do this sometimes, is just have them on call. Let them know there's a planning session happen. And then when a question comes up, can we do this? And you need an answer from someone who's closer to the account, you can always call the broker. But if we're sitting in a three-hour session planning, uh, that maybe is also not what the broker wants
1: to do for the one or two questions that might come up. Great. Okay. Next question. Also two questions, two people have asked this one. Okay. Many of those things you talked about measuring your team on seem more qualitative than quantitative. Is that true? And if so, how do you balance looking at and measuring that qualitative piece with more data-driven metrics?
2: That's a great question. It is very qualitative. I mean, I guess that's it. What are somebody's presentation skills? You know, if they're struggling in the presentation and delivering the message, like that is absolutely something as a manager, I'm going Mm -hmm. to to call out as a soft skill and maybe say like, Hey, I need you to go to a presentation skills training, or maybe I'm seeing, you know, when they show me or their manager, the presentation that they're planning on giving and we hear them and they're just not nailing the story. It's, it's absolutely something that, you know, I'm having my leaders work with them on and get better, but it is a challenge. You have to, you have to know the stuff you you have to set your expectation of here's what I want yeah. and be really clear, you know, the smart goals think there's things like follow-up emails like that's easy either you're doing it or you're not doing it and i've had instances where i mean i ask people to send follow-up emails without in 24 hours and sometimes they don't so that one's kind of easy to measure but you're absolutely right you know you're making a lot of judgment calls on the performance within your team but you also have that comparison across the team of you know how people are doing you can see how some people do that stuff better than others too
1: and I think, too, the, on the data side or the quantitative side is following the maps guideline, making sure the team is following the strategy that we set during key learnings and the, the planning process. So mm-hmm. they're staying within 16 weeks of promotion at this depth. I mean, that's a quantitative thing you can measure. They're not going to go below a certain NEP. They're going to go and ask for the top three items on our SKU priority list. So following those type of things, you can add a little bit of a quantitative thing to it to support what Heather's saying from a qualitative perspective. That's what I've seen is really stay in maps guidance. All right, Colin, I got a question for you. This is from our good friend, Sam Anthony says, any thoughts on how to best analyze price elasticities in this unprecedented inflationary environment? Also, hi, Heather, you're the best.
3: Well, I think the short answer to that is just hire Omnium and we'll help you with that. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Nailed it. You probably need to bring in some more analytical firepower. Price elasticities are notoriously difficult to tease out. Omnium does help with that. So that was a bit of a joke, but yes, please enlist our help in that. But it's hard right now. There are a lot of things happening at the same time. So it can be hard to tease out exactly how much impact is coming from say price versus inflation, but really looking at, I'd say tighter timelines around when you took price. So looking at accounts saying, what was my business doing right before price and right after and getting a read on that and trying to ignore longer term trends. Because if you just look at like last 52 weeks versus a year ago, there's so many things going on that it's muddied. So you have to dial into a shorter timeframe on either side. I could go a lot deeper. Sam, let's have a
1: chat. On other methodologies, but probably out of context for our few minutes remaining today. I guess because pricing is one of those things where once it hits the shelf, the impact happens right away. Yeah. So that's what Colin's trying to say is really go and dial it in. Cause you'll see it prices here, it goes up a dollar. If there's a response to price, it's going to happen right away. So really nail it in that way. Mm-hmm.
3: And then, cool. I mean, filtering your data, like if you know, there were some periods of time when you weren't able to supply, you just have to remove those from your data set. And so got to
1: cobble together some data and do the best we can. Okay. Here's a question for you. In a 52-week period, what's the minimum number of weeks on deal by percentage? How do you think about this, Heather, when we're setting maps and we're looking at how many weeks we want to put in that strategy?
2: Wow. I don't think we can even answer that one. It varies by category, by your spend rate, by your three-legged stool. There you go. I
1: was hoping you'd say that, three-legged stool. There you go. I
2: mean, the number of weeks is, if I do a BOGO, I might say I can only do one of those a year because it's super deep discount with a lot of funding in it. And if I do really shallow discounts, I could end up extending that throughout the year and have 26 weeks on deal. So I've done both and it really depends on the category. And Mm -hmm. again, like I've worked across like refrigerated, frozen, shelf stable, bars, cosmetics. So it varies by category for sure.
3: You mentioned this Heather, but looking at the category, so pulling out top brands within a category and looking at their weeks and percent discount, assuming that you're not like top in the category with some huge advantage, you're probably going to be expected to play similarly to the other brands. So that's a good place to start. See what the range is in like the top 10 accounts, because you might find that there is a much wider range than you think between
1: eight and 26 weeks of promotion. Yeah. In terms of a benchmark, like you said, Colin, eight to 26 seems to be the typical range that you would expect for a customer that promotes. Mm-hmm.
3: In the middle, I'd say 12 weeks at 15% off is kind of like middle of the road can probably get away with that. And it's not going to break your budget. If you're just have no data and starting out, that would be a good place to evaluate and then move from there in one direction or the other.
1: So this is the last question. We've had it twice. It was our first and last question. I don't have a good answer for it, so hoping one of you two do. But the question is, when new people in the industry ask, what is the best and quickest way to learn basic analysis for for the CPG world, what would you tell them? Are there any online resources or courses or tips that you would provide your team with to help them improve their data-driven storytelling?
2: Yeah. I would say I worked at Nielsen, so I got yeah. thrown off the data. Yeah. We use this company called Crown Analytics to develop like basic reporting that comes out of Nielsen or spins. And Chris does a really good job at is developing like standard charts that help yeah. you in terms of like pulling things. But I would say play with the data. Like, get into the reporting and filter things and look at them and start piecing together, like, what's my question and how might I That's answer it?
1: What's the question? Get, really dial in on that specific question, I think, is really important. Because sometimes it's too broad a question. You kind of get stuck of where to go. But it was very much like, how did that promotion run at Publix in Q1? That's a very, very specific question that you can go and dive into the numbers. Yeah. And then then you guys also have,
3: Heather, if your team uses like a kind of template on how you would like sales presentations laid out that just has like a blank slide for your intro. And here's where the data section would go that kind of keeps things consistent. So I think that that helps. Yeah,
2: that's a good point. I've done story selling classes like I have taken them. They're phenomenal mm-hmm. if they're done right. Colin, really great point. I was going to say, like, look at other people's presentations. Like, ask friends. We all are connected on LinkedIn and through this yeah. amazing work. Ask friends. Like, do you have anything you're really proud of? If it's non-competitive, that you wouldn't mind walking me through. Like, use your resources. Yeah. And ask people questions.
3: Yeah, probably don't reinvent any wheels at this point. Yeah, (laughs) So many sales presentations happening every day that there's enough good ones out there to borrow from. We don't need to start from scratch on this stuff.
2: Last one. Last last point. Here we go. Less slides are better. If you have a half hour meeting, do not have more than 15 slides. Like I usually do like half is like max. That's a great tip.
1: I That's love a great that. final word. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Heather, so much. It's always a pleasure chatting the business with you. Thanks to everyone for listening. This episode will air as a podcast some point next week. And naturally, Bay Area. Thank you for hosting. I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks so much, everyone.